And then when Herod saw the trick by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and according to the times he had determined on the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared and dreamed to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. Those who sought the child's life were dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. When he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And then after being warned by God in a dream, he left the regions of Galilee and came to live in a city called Nazareth. This was fulfilled, which spoken through the prophets, He shall be from Nazareth. All right, amen. So this week, part two, we started two weeks ago. Mike McFarland and John Lynch were fellowship here last week. And thank you so much by your great offer. Uh, if you see the bulletin there, you'll see how you stretched yourself and sacrificed for them. And that was a great blessing to them and the charity. But, uh, so we were blessed last week, but now we want to get back into this study. And so this is part two of responses to the king. And that's kind of where I want you to focus your mind this morning. Responses to the king. We all have a response, in other words. And so let's see what Matthew shares with us concerning some responses between just the men. Now, if you're interested in how these sections break down, it's pretty straightforward. As you look at this, it doesn't take much to figure this out. Verses 13 through 15 are all about Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt. Verses 16 through 18 is about Herod and his murdering of the male children, two years of age and under. And in the final verses there, 19 to 23, are Joseph and Mary's turn back into Israel. Now, as you read through that or you hear those comments, those breaking up of those sections, you think that this is all about Joseph and Mary. And it certainly is in a lot of ways. But really, this is all about Jesus. It's all about the Lord. And I want to keep emphasizing that for us. The other night I was at a meeting, anyway, a religious meeting of sorts for people that are not a part of the church here, was invited to be a part of it. And I was taken back a little bit by the emphasis that was placed on the individuals that are heading the ministry and being a part of the ministry. There's certainly nothing wrong with uh, promoting those that worked hard in ministry, but I was reminded by spirit during that time that this is really not about us. We are not elevated above one or the other. We are all servants of the Lord. So as much as God will use Joseph and Mary and did use them, as we're reading through the text uh, currently here, uh, just remember that what God has really promoted for us is his son. This is about Jesus. Now, when he said that, God does use people. Yeah? That's why we're here. He uses us. He, and, uh, he gives us an opportunity to respond to him. The question is, what is our response? What is going to be our response? Now, I'd like for us to think of this in these two ways. Number one is God's protection of the king. That seems to be pretty obvious from the text. And then the responses that we see to God's work. And so the protection of the king, that's what these guys are about. And our responses. Now, up to this point, we've seen in God's protection of Jesus, or promoting who he is. Remember, Matthew is defining for the Hebrews that Jesus is, in fact, Christ. We've studied through the genealogy. We learned his physical right to be the king through uh, Joseph. We learned through Mary. We learned about his royal right to be the king. We learned about his divine right that he was born of the Virgin. The Holy Spirit placed within Mary, his mother. And we saw the response of the Magi. We had these people come from a nation far away from Israel to worship Christ. What's response to who he is? And we've also seen the proof even by how Herod has responded in the way he has. We've seen all of that. And not to mention Jesus himself. And how they respond by neglecting the birth of Christ. Okay? So we've seen all that. Now today we're going to continue on the narrative and understand this a little bit better and see what, this, what the Lord shows us, shows us about his kingship and how people should respond to him. Now, let's just take a step back for just a moment. The new kind we've been doing, for those of you who've been coming on Wednesday night, you know this, we've been fleshing out, if you will, the sermons, and that's been a real blessing to me and I think the group, as I mentioned the other night. And by the way, each of you should be there. Amen? Right? Clear calendars so you can be there on Wednesday nights. So let's dive into what we do kind of there and read between the lines just a little bit. You know all this about Jesus, it's about the people too. Can you imagine, again, what Joseph and Mary were experiencing at this moment? I mean, these were real people, living real life, experiencing something that no one had ever experienced before. Mary, randomly, this is a message from an angel that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. Ladies, how would you like that? Okay, there's a lot. I mean, but that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? And so we would think of this as being some kind of Hollywood movie, but this was reality. Come on, reality TV. That's where it's getting closer. Joseph then faced the dilemma. What do I do this one? He thinks she's pregnant from some other person until God intervenes. At that point, though, he was thinking, I just have to fulfill the law. He was a righteous man. There's only two options here. I can divorce her or I can have her killed. And you know, thankfully, that didn't do the killing part. And just before he's about to go through what he says, he, or what the obligation he has, he also has a thing confirming that this child is truly the Christ. And so I'd give him a messenger to give him that message. And then, on top of all that, that wasn't stressful enough. They found out that they have to travel 100 miles to their hometown of David's home, excuse me, Joseph's hometown, of Nazareth, of Nazareth, of the census. Actually, Jerusalem, sorry, my words are so weird. While Mary is about to have to deliberate, 
Now, those of you go back to your days when you were in the process of getting ready for a child, imagine at the ninth hour, almost literally, you have to go somewhere else and make a journey by donkey, or by foot, over rocky terrain, treacherous territory, to do what God has called you to do. And we find that that's what they do. They just obey, and they fulfill what the Lord has called them to do. So can you imagine stress level? Can you imagine the encouragement that they must have had when the Magi show up? I mean, after going through all they were going through, and the struggle that must have been like to have these people show up and bring these amazing gifts and put them at the feet of the baby. What an education. What an amazing feat that would be. Talk about a baby shower. I mean, that's pretty elaborate. What an incredible joy. And they realize that what's been foretold for centuries. Now, they are very much a part of it. I believe that they were certainly students of the word because that's what the Hebrews did. They learned things about Hankism. They learned the scriptures by road membership. And so they would know these kind of things, but never understanding how they would know except for God doing a miracle like he did that they would be literally parents of Jesus. Talk about pressure. Amazing. Well, I'm just saying some of those things. I hope you realize that not only there's a Mary part of God's plan, but I think it's important to realize we also are part of God's plan. It was easy for us to just put aside and say that God was doing something unique in the life of these individuals. But I just want you to realize, and as I remind myself, is that every believer is a part of God's divine plan. It wasn't an accident that you were born. If you were born on this earth, it was because God purposed on you to be here, for me to be here, for his own divine reason, which is to reach people. It's to worship him and to reach people. That's why we have these banners up here, to reach more, for it's too late. Before he comes again, not as the lamb of Judah, but as the lion. We'll certainly come and do that. We are his arms and his legs. That's who we are. We're his feet. We're his hands. We are his mind. We are his spirit. Each of us have a purpose in his body to be. And so I think we need to be, be encouraged. You know, life is very difficult at times. Some of you are facing some very challenging, very difficult things in this life. We're going to be working hard for the Lord. We're going to be used by the Lord. Again, I'll bring up Mike with Mike Beckoff as we see you now. Very challenging work today. You know, I was thinking about their life, their being Mike and Linda, this morning for years now, 22 years, almost 23 years. Mike, just about every year, every other year, leaves Greece, leaves Linda, even when the kids were young, would spend months here in the U.S. going from church to church to church, talking about the ministry and trying to raise money for them. That's challenging. I need that Imagine having to do that kind of thing. But nonetheless, they do it because of what God's called us to do. I hope that you all got, uh, if you didn't let know, got the email that I sent out about compassion and hope being one to revive our hearts. Did you see that email? Uh, Kevin listened to Nancy Lee Moss. That's who she used to be. Woggle is now who she is. Mary um, has a radio ministry for years called Revive Our Hearts. And Brother Al and his wife Susan were on there doing an interview about what's going on with compassion and hope. And it's just absolutely amazing as you listen to some stories and what our brothers and sisters are experiencing across the world at the hands of persecutors. And they're living this day with them. Throughout the years, they've been living this with them. So life is difficult. It's challenging. God had called Joseph and Mary to a very challenging life. He asked them to walk a very difficult road. But they were obedient to the Lord because God had spoken to their hearts. And that's really all we need, right? All we really need is to know that God has touched our hearts and saved us, not just so we can get to eternity, but so that we can be workers for him in this field that he's called us in. We all have our own fields, but we're called to work in those fields. So we got to hang in there. I mean, life gets more and more challenging. It doesn't get easier. I remember an old friend of mine years ago saying to me, when I first started ministry, he looked at me one day, and he was in his 80s then. He said, Bridget, it doesn't get easier. I thought, great. Wonderful. Just what I was looking for. But it really is true. This physical life does not get easier. Our bodies break down. Our minds don't work well anymore. We go big bushy eyebrows. <laughs> my granddaughter said to me when I was in Chicago, just know my life and she looked at me funny. And she was looking at my nose. <laughs> and as I went on, she just kind of had this face, and she was looking, and she said, are those little things coming out of your nose? Are they spider legs? <laughs> I said, oh, honey, those are not spiders. <laughs> hey, I never had these old man problems before. <laughs> but don't mention that you just have to bring that kind of stuff out, right? So we had a lot of fun. It's the last time I ever said it. Life is challenging. But we're going to hang in there. Listen, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, let us not lose heart in doing good. Why? For in due time, that's the key. In due time, we will weep if we do not go weep. In due time. Who's due time? We're going to make our due time, by the way. In God's due time. Paul said the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, there are a lot of days that we don't see any results from what we do. There are a lot of days that we don't understand what's happening in our lives. And I'm talking about spiritually. A lot of days where it seems real dark. But God is saying to us these promises, and we must hold on to them. And my favorite passage is Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, isn't that a beautiful truth? If the heavenly curtain were open, we would see these saints that have gone on before us. 
And they are there in the fulfillment of what God has promised to every saint who serves him. And so it's like, look, look at the arena in which you're in. You're on the playing field right now. But this is the arena of those that were called to go before you, and look at these ones who are there in front of you, and lay aside every hundreds of sin that so easily attains us in the world, world, and let us run with the race, the race that he set before us. What do we do? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Right? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith, for the joy set forth, endured the cross, despising shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, or consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will never grow weary and lose heart. Don't grow weary. How easy would it have been for Joseph and Mary in this weird state of affairs to just want to give up? Is it any wonder that the angel had to do what he did? Is it any wonder that God had to go through the way, the plan the way he did? Can you imagine how they could easily just done and say, no, I'm going to do this? I think about the people out there that are Lord Jesus. I'd be very sensitive here, but I think, what plan God must have for that? But yet to say, no, I'm not doing this. And in life with that child, God had a great plan for that child. Can you imagine? It's very easy to quit serving the Lord when there's little to no evidence of what God is doing. In fact, I had a conversation with Jim the other day with a young man. He was there as a part of a wedding party of a guy who goes to the gym regularly. So the young man was actually from Liberty University. He and a group of guys were there, and uh, they were there to have enjoy the wedding of their friend who was part of the gym. And uh, the friend said to the young man, hey, I'm a pastor. Talk about me personally. And uh, so the young guy came up to me, and he said, hey, have you ever thought about doing church planting? I said, sure, I thought about it. I've time, a lot of churches, but I've never been really called to that. He said, yeah, I think God, you could do something in my life. He said, you have any advice for me? And I said, yeah, here's a little bit of advice. Get the success small out of your mind. You know what I he looked at me real funny, and he said, what do you mean? I said, you got to get out of your head. If you're going to go, you're going to build this huge edifice to God. That may happen. But the Lord may call you to some faraway place that nobody knows anything about what's going on. you got to get the success model out of your mind because God has called you just to serve Him. Not to be, well, you have a real problem now. Listen, there's a real problem getting them in and coming out and serve in small churches because now what they see in these mega churches is nobody wants to go to the small places. Everybody wants to go to the big successful places. But what's success? Success is having people who follow Christ, right? It's the Lord who does His own work. Joseph and Mary didn't know what God was doing. They really didn't. What they knew was to be obedient. And thankfully, the Lord supported what he was doing with them by sending the angel to them. So let's get back to Joseph and Mary now as we have his thoughts in our mind. As, cur- as encouraging as it was to have the magic come, their encouragement wouldn't last very long. And that's what we read in our text this morning, because Joseph has another encounter with an angel. The news is not good to sign. The last time was, you will certainly have Bible. This is of the Lord. That's good news. I need to hear that. But this is not the message Joseph wanted to hear. Notice what he says in verse 13. Flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. So there are three parts of this instruction, which are go, stay, and wait there until I give you further instruction. I can imagine how difficult that would be as we add this extra burden to Joseph and Mary. It's not uncommon for the Lord to do this kind of thing. It's kind of like the military or something say, hurry up and wait. You know, we got to do all this, we got to do all this, got to do this, and you get everything together, and you get there. Now what do we do? Well, you wait. God often does that with us. Here's what I want you to do. This is what's going to happen. Now go do it. You get there, and you find yourself waiting and waiting and waiting. You might this morning be saying, listen, I know that God called me to do this or that. I know the Lord has spoken to my heart and told me this is what I should do, and you spent lots of time and energy and years of your life potentially to go do and be, and now you're not seeing anything from it. And you wonder, what is this? Was I just maybe hearing something incorrectly? Was it just some feeling that I was experiencing? It wasn't really the Lord. What's God doing? Some of you are going through some very challenging circumstances right now. It's not just you, it's something that you love. And you're probably wondering, what in the world is happening here? I know this, that, and that, but I just don't see God and what he's doing in this. So sometimes God just says to us, I want you to go. I want you to stay there. I want you to wait. And that's all we really need to know. Because God wants us to know more, he give us more. Wouldn't he? Because we have the examples that scriptures teach us that. Joseph Mary needed to go to Egypt. And he says, now listen, I'm going to give you any more information than this. You just wait. You wait there until I come to tell you what else I want you to do. And it's our role. We go and do what God calls us to do, and we wait for him to move. You know, some of the greatest, biggest mistakes by God's people have been pushing God, telling God, oh, here we go, God, let's go do this. Let's make this happen. Oh, it might even be good. It doesn't mean God's in. Often our flesh can get very wrapped up in the things that we want God to be a part of. Amen? You hear that? As a church, we can do the same thing. We can get a model in our eyes of what we think church ought to be when the Lord is saying, listen, church is not about you. Back to our beginning here. The church is about me, the Lord would say. You see, the Christian life is not about doing. The Christian life is about being. It's about being a child of the King. 
we do only what he tells us to do when he tells us to do it, and until then we prefer the orders. Amen? And that's very critical for us to understand. So Joseph, though, is told, after this, the narrative here, why they must flee. That's very helpful. A lot of times God tells us that. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And again, for just about anybody else, I have to believe this would be the freak-out moment. I mean, actually, the freak-out meter would be pegging right As you're now told that Herod the Great, this ruthless guy, is seen to destroy this child, your child, the one that you've gone through, the things that you've gone through. I can hear people saying, do what? What are you talking about? How is that possible? Are you kidding? Some people say, you know, I'm so over this. I'm so done with this kind of life. I'm so ready to be finished with everything that's going on. Is this the way it has to be? And all those questions arise in the minds of each of us as we face our struggle. You know, as a father, as a husband, I understand the stress of taking care of him. I've been doing it for a lot of years now, just like many of you all have. It's very stressful at times. Many times I've felt the pressure of the crazy things that life throws at families, especially children. And often, I'm sad to say, and you all probably know this better than I do, I fail miserably in my responses, even to my own children. I'm often freaked out in certain circumstances, at least for the moment. In fact, just, I told some of you about this, just to tell you how full of it I'm not. <laughs> the other day when my wife, maybe was on her way over to South Africa, uh, you know these phones that you have on us have these little um, trackers? Did you know that? You can track your loved ones, right? And your loved ones often will keep those turned off because they don't track. Well, so did you know there's also this thing called, I have to show my ignorance here because it's probably 30 years old. There's a thing called flightstatus.com where you can see the flight number and you can track the flight. This is like on GPS on Google, but it's for the air. You see this in the airplane, you can watch it on your phone. So I told them she got, was going through the gate of security of the palace, I said, give me a flight number, because I had an ulterior motive. <laughs> I wanted to watch my wife fly across the ocean. And so the first leg to Dubai was 12 hours, and then the second flight from Dubai to South Africa was nine. Well, so I put in this flight number, and it shows you this beautiful little picture of a seawall airplane flying across this arc, going over to Dubai. Well, after 10 hours, it was late at night, and I knew she was going to be there about a couple hours later. That's what the tracker said. Well, she had the ability to text. That's pretty cool. And so we hadn't been doing it very long, but for a few minutes we were involved in a conversation that was really pinging back and forth. And so I'm kind of watching the tractor, and she's between Baghdad and Afghanistan, okay, because they fly over the war zones and kind of diverge around those. I'm watching the tractor, all of a sudden, in the midst of our text, it just goes dead. The texting does. I look at the flight tracker, and I'm kidding not. I'm ready to share this with some folks. The little airplane, it was going to Dubai, trying to do this, it was coming down to Dubai. All of a sudden, it just goes click, 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 and starts heading right for it. Okay. <laughs> I'm probably about here. <laughs> and all I can say was, Lord, this is what happened. I thought she had done that. But that's where my mind went. Because I'm thinking, you were just in the middle of the text, and now this tracker is doing that crazy diversion in that part of the world. So you see, my faith is pretty small sometimes. But thankfully, the plane in a few minutes came back on track, and I learned later from the picture that the GPS will do that kind of thing sometimes. Well, Satan was really messy. Because I would just, I would say, okay, that'd be fine as long as in the middle of the ocean or something right there. And he just got all these kind of thoughts going. And then, of course, just that same week, Christian's driving across from California, uh, across the country, and thankfully had a friend with him. Do you know, I understand what it's like to have these pressures on us. I get it. There's not a parent alive who cares anything about their kids. doesn't feel these kind of pressures. I mentioned that, you know, a son who's been in the war zone twice in the garden in South Africa living by himself. I get it. So I'm imagining a little bit about what Joseph must have been feeling at this point. The angel comes in a dream, no less, and tells him, hey, you got to go because Herod's going to try to kill the baby. Wonderful. This is starting out to be a great day. You see the problem? This is reality. And then we're right, what God also says, for example, Hebrews 13, I never desert you, and I forsake you. Bless you. Listen, we need to hear the Lord. Not just our hearts pounding, we don't understand what's going on, we need to hear the Lord. So that we can confidently say, the writer says in Hebrews, the Lord is my help, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. And I have to believe that Joseph sensed in his own heart the truth of that, after all that passage from Hebrews was from an Old Testament passage. Joseph, no doubt, would have known. But I think for Joseph, this was obviously very challenging, and just the beginning. That's really the sad part, too. This is just the beginning of a life that was going to be very, very challenging. Because of who Christ was. But he was learning to trust God, and that's what God has in mind for all this. So he could get up and do what God called to do. And that's what we do. We trust God, and we get up, and we do what God calls us to do. We don't try to manipulate the situation, we just obey. We face our difficulties, and we respond where we should. We say things like, okay, Lord, I'll do this a different way, but we got this. We're going to make it through. Because our faith is in Him. Now, I don't know what you're facing, but God does. 
I'm going to put down the barrel of it now. I'm sure you may be in some ways involved, but it'll come. We have these challenges that come our way. I think what we need to make sure of is that our response is critical. When we're responding to the problem, we say, no problem, Lord. I thought that's what Joseph was thinking. Okay, Lord, no problem. How do we know that? Because the scripture tells us in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Let's wait for the Lord. Psalm 4, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord hears our cries in the darkness, doesn't he? He hears our pain. He knows our suffering. He knows what we're doing. Psalm 62, 5, my soul waited in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. You know what Joseph did? Look at verse 14. So Joseph got up, took the child of his mother, just this while it was still light, and left for each. And he remained there until death appeared. Good faith. Look at obedience. Look at the text. He makes no excuses. He doesn't offer any objections. He just flat out obeys. And by the way, in the middle of the night. Now, I probably would have said, okay, well, that's great, but can we do this first thing in the morning? <laughs> you know, it's a long way, so I'm tired, I've been working all day, I mean, whatever. It, just, it would be okay. But he leaves in the middle of the night, same night, by the way, he hears a more. I think obedience is the key to our responses. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? You keep my commandments. If you love me, if you love me, you will obey me. Jesus says. Joseph, a beautiful picture here. John 14, verse 23, just a few verses later, Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That means adhere to it, follow it. And my father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our own with him. In other words, we live in that heart, because that person is true mine. St. John, 1 John 5, 3, Christ has just been studying this, we'll remember this, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus said, we studied this on Wednesday night, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Obedience. Flat out, simple, basic obedience. The Lord says it, we do it. Responses. And there's another question that comes to mind at this point in the narrative, is that why do they have to go through all this? I mean, couldn't God have done this a different way? I mean, think about it. He's God. Right? Let's use our fleshly mind here just for a second, kind of as a negative advocate here. Couldn't God have done this a different way? What was he doing this? Why was he doing this? Well, we don't know why he was doing it this way, except to answer, he was putting himself on display. And that's what God does. He glorifies himself through our difficulties. Now, you said that pretty, pretty mean-spirited of him, but let's not forget the rest of it. That God loves us and uses us according to his purposes. And let's not forget that he has also given to us his spirit, and yada, yada, He's given to us his eternal kingdom to enjoy forever. He has told us we are his servants, and he is the creator, and so he calls the shots. <clears throat> He's putting himself on display. Now, we do know some practical things, and that is, is that Joseph, I think, probably began to realize Mary needed him. They were in a difficult circumstance. Joseph needed to be by her side. So I think that's part of it. Jesus needed him in a human sense. Jesus was a baby. Remember, he was a fully man at the same time. So don't get lost in my statement there. Just understand as a baby, Jesus gave up, if you will, temporarily, and be careful about my words here, but suspended, stopped, halted in some ways his ability to do certain things because he was a child. And so there was a great need here for these parents. And we now know, or at least have a better understanding, of why the Magi brought the gifts. I mean, we didn't understand it that moment a few verses ago when they came to the child and they brought these beautiful gifts. But now we learn through the angel that they're going to have to travel south of all days, and they're going to need some way to make that happen. And so gold, frankincense, and myrrh would be pretty valuable things to use as a commodity to pay your pay your Beautiful picture of the Lord here doing all these things. As if it had already happened, Joseph didn't know he'd be a party in this incredible spiritual battle. He didn't know he'd need these things that they were, they were given to him by the Magi. You can imagine at that moment they're laying these gifts down in the joy of the celebration of Christ is, but he didn't know why they were bringing those things, really. He didn't know what he was going to need it for. But now we're learning through all that God was making full use of those things and fulfilling his plan. So we go through our challenges. We go through our difficulties. So God can get the praise, and often he removes us from being able to do anything about what he's pleased. God says he's going to get the praise for himself because our simple hearts are so simple. And if we have any part in making something turn out well without being all given the claim to God, we're going to accept praise for ourselves. Sometimes the only thing he puts in front of us is hope, faith, endurance, keeping our eyes on him. In the back of our minds, in the back of our hearts, we know that God is doing it. Guidance through his plan. I've shared these verses so many times with you before, but they're really appropriate times like this. Proverbs 16, 9, 9, the man who plans his way. The Lord directs his steps. 
and you have to hold on to that truth. And there's a listing of others here that I don't take the time to read, except maybe the next one, Proverbs 19.21, man's plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. We must hold on to the fact that God put us all here for a purpose. We are not a mistake. God has not somehow gotten about our lives and wondered what he's going to do with us. We are very much a part of the plan, and we are the ones who are the wise ones to say, okay, Lord, I'll do it your way. God is directing everything about us. He is directing this church, even though we may not know it, we may not understand what he's doing. He is directing everything about it. Why? Because we belong to him. And this is, of course, what he's saying in his word. Now, at some point, every believer has to accept this truth, that God is in control, and he's not going to stop anything to accomplish his plan. We're seeing that. Isaiah 1.27 says, The Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? As for, the, as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? The prophet said, didn't he? Who's going to frustrate the hands of the Lord? The Lord is not sitting in heaven and saying, How am I going to accomplish this? How am I going to get so-and-so from here to there? How am I going to meet this need? How am I going to accomplish this issue? They can't see it. I can't see it either. But God is not like that. God is not fulfilling his plan for us. What we have to do is respond very similarly to what we're seeing Joseph. And again, I think Joseph probably understood some of these things, so he didn't question. So I think he sounded the family donkey and headed out for Egypt. And they stayed there until the trip was over, until the parent was dead. And he said, yeah, but he had a direct encounter with God. And that's why he was so well fed. Well, that's true. But he also did have the completed word, you have relapsed this morning. In other words, God has given to us as great a lesson as the people of the old day had when God spoke to them directly. God has given to you literally foretelling the future. We know what's going to come. We know the future. They didn't have it. They had prophets to help them understand, but they didn't have the completed word from the beginning to the end. So in a sense, you and I are in a greater, greater place than they were. Okay, so back to the narrative real quickly here. We have to ask this question. So why Egypt? Before understanding the text, could they have gone to some other part of Israel? I mean, if they stayed in Israel, they could have at least have the temple to worship in, or at least some temple. If God sends them to Egypt, what's the reason? Why would they have to go to a pagan land? Why is God sending them out of the nation completely? Well, number one is, and this is really all we need to know, in my opinion, is that God sent them. And that's really what it comes down to in the basic sense. But there's much more to it, and I don't want to bore you with all this. I was trying to figure out how much to give you in this, but let me just give you some of this, because I want you to see the hand of God in just a miraculous way. We'll emphasize everything we've talked about here. So history tells us that during the intertestamental period, you know what that is? That's between the two testaments. So 400 years there of nothing that we have tangibly at least from God in a written sense, or even a prophetic sense. 400 years of basically God being quiet. During that intertestamental period, some of you who are history buffs will know this even better than I do, Greece grew into a world power. And they began to dominate the world. Under two men, a father and a son, the son is the one who's no more, Alexander Great. He was prophesied by him in Daniel Prophecy. He was a warrior, a diplomat, an administrator, but also a guy who wanted to rule the world. He wasn't going to stop anything less than ruling the world. And one of his conquests, interestingly, was in the land of Israel. They were told, according to history, that when Alexander came into Jerusalem, the high priest at the time was a man by the name of Simon the Just. And Alexander paraded himself on a huge white horse, and he would wear a large plume on top of his helmet. And so when he would come into any kind of enemy territory or some conquered land, he was really overwhelming to look at. In fact, we're told that he probably would stand to the top of his plume about 13 feet while he's sitting on the back of the horse. That's pretty intimidating. But when Alexander saw Simon in Israel as a high priest, Alexander did a strange thing. He came in and he bowed down to the high priest. And his leaders, advisors, questioned him, and he told them that whenever he went into battle, he would be led by an angel that would lead him into victory. This is what Alexander said. And he said that the face of Simon, the Jewish high priest, was a face that he always saw on the angel that led him into battle into victory. And so because of that encounter, he realized and recognized that there was a lot of history behind his sensitivity to the Jewish faith from Aristotle, believe it or not. He was a believer in God in a sense. We've got to go back to all that. We'll be taking you back. But that's why he bowed to him, because of this amazing encounter. And so because of that encounter, and because of Alexander's sort of belief in God, he became very sensitive to Jewish people. He sensitive in a certain sense, as long as they were loyal and paid their taxes. And he said, well, that's great about Israel, but it says that they went to Egypt. What does that have to do with Egypt? Well, here's where it also gets interesting. God's got a plan. Well, Alexander, in his conquests, also conquered Egypt. And one of the places that was very dear to him was the city of Alexandria, which he named after himself. Because of his toleration for Jews, Alexandria was proclaimed a sanctuary city for the Jews. 
In fact, we know through history that after about four years from Jesus was crucified, Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher and historian, said that Alexandria housed over a million Jews escaping persecution. Now listen, that was before Jesus was born, and he entered testimony. Can you see God setting the stage for this event to be able to say to Joseph, listen, Herod's seeking the baby. I want you to get out of Israel and go to Egypt. Now why Egypt? Because for Alexander, Egypt had become a sanctuary city of the Jews, a place where the child would be sent. Amazing, it's absolutely mind-boggling. So all that to say, Egypt just simply was friendly to the Jews, making it a great escape plan or path or place for Joseph and Mary and helping them to not question Egypt to just keep going and to go there. They understood this in a historical context. But we're just told randomly by Matthew what this was all about. And to me, it's just absolutely staggering. The illustration of God and how he had done what he had done to move his word into history and reach the nations with the gospel. And so it leaves me, and I hope it does you, with the question, is there anything too difficult about it? And we talk about this all the time in our private conversations and our mass meetings and wherever we are. But listen, is God capable of meeting your need? Is he capable? Why are we worried? Why are we questioning? Why do we somehow work our fingers to the bone and bite our fingernails off when we believe, at least we say with our mouths, that God is capable of doing even the rest? You know why we do that? Because we don't really believe. That's really why. If we truly believe, there's not one of us in this room that would ever have a moment of worry or anxiety. No. We're subject. We would never do it. That's the truth. But we do worry. We do get caught up in a lot of concern, a lot of abuse. No one has. And beyond that, we don't have anything about the same Egypt. That's all that Matthew gives to us. He just says, go to Egypt. We have a lot of speculations. There are a lot of speculations from other people about what happened there. There's some miraculous stories that have been talked about and commentators have written about. Another what God gives us right here. We don't even know how long they were in Egypt. Maybe months, it could have been longer. What we do know is what the purpose was. And God told him, look at verse 15. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, here we go. God was fulfilling exactly what he said he would do. From Joseph's forefathers all the way down to the time of this event. In fact, this quote, look at this. None of you have lived 700 years. I mean, I some of us look like them. None of us have lived 700 years, but this quote in verse 15 is from 700 years earlier when Hosea, the prophet, prophesied about what God had done for Israel 700 years before he prophesied about it. So 1,400 years earlier, Hosea is making a claim about something that happened, like I said, 1,400 years ago during the time of the occupation that Israel was in under Pharaoh. It was through those dramatic means that God delivered his people out of Egypt. Then, and now God delivered his son also out of Egypt. Do you see how all that was a foreshadowing or what we call a theology of type? I shouldn't say type because that's not the most accurate. It's not a foreshadowing of what God would do to Christ at this particular event. I just want us to see this morning, we're going to cut this off here in just a minute, but I want us to see that our God, beloved, is so awesome. He's so great and so glorious and so grand. As I said a second ago, we, we have no reason ever to be concerned justifiably about what our life would tell or where it's going to end up. Over and over and over again, we spend our days doing this, doing that, and wondering how it's all going to turn out. And will my life end up being what I really want it to be, and on and on it goes. Do you see the point? Let's go on to the beginning. And what happens next is one of those inconceivable things that anybody could comment in my opinion. When Herod saw the intrigue on the mansion, he became enraged. That's when he goes out and he kills all the children in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. So somehow Herod learns the man had returned and not given him the news to the king. That was not going to be very helpful. So he literally flies into a fit of rage. The text literally reads in the original, if you break down the word trick, it's the idea of being mocked or making sport of. And Herod would not have to stand for that. He was thinking that these Jews were just making fun of him. And so he responds to this supposed threat, which is really not a threat, because Christ had come to rescue him, right? In a merciless way, really born of Satan, sends the army, his henchmen to kill children. Make sure he covers his bases. We talked about this two weeks ago. Just make sure he covers his bases. He covers all the children from two years of age and up under. Just in case he didn't kill Jesus, at least he'd satisfy his fury against being tricked. So what do you say about that kind of heart? Is it really possible to be so wicked? It is. We just had another situation happen yesterday. A Walmart, all places. Where the soul of a person is so deep and dark and sin, so lost, they would think it's okay to do some things that Tertius doesn't do. It's crazy. When you say you would never conceive of something like that, you would. I don't question you, really. By the light of the Spirit in your heart, you would do the same kind of thing. 
may be able to understand that we are just as capable of being a Herod as Herod is capable of being a Herod. Without the light of Christ in us, we would go to the depths of depravity and live out the depths of our depravity in the face of society just like a small culture. It's true. If you ever deny that, you really don't understand the grace of God. You really don't understand what Christ has done to rescue us. There are souls right now that are rotting in hell because they have no light of Christ in them. This is why when we're in the state of Revelation, you see the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not the gnashing of teeth that says, I'm so sorry. It's the gnashing of teeth that's without Christ and without the light of hope and want to shake a wicked fist in his face, still want to fight in the depths of that eternal damnation. You know what the saddest part to me is? Quite possibly some people in this room don't hear that place. I'm just being honest. But there are those who have professed Christ with their lips, but their life does not reflect him. Or some people may be listening by Facebook today that would be in that same predicament. Where Christ has been on their mind, maybe brought up in the church, maybe brought up their godly parents, but yet they have no need and no desire to follow Christ will be in that terrible place, just like Herod was able to do what he did, all for his own glory. We're just as capable of doing the same kind of thing. We'll cut people with our tongues, we'll defeat them with our attitudes, we'll curse them under our breath, we'll turn away from them out of arrogance and hatred instead of absorbing them into our own hearts and bringing them into the family of God. And we watched this over the centuries, and we have to reiterate some of these things, but you know what's been going on throughout the centuries. There's an interesting side note to Herod's desire to kill Jesus. God's very clear about this. Those who reject the Messiah will be punished more severely than those who do not know. And that's a tragic circumstance. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who was trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and is exalted in spirit of grace? Here's Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, the one who was listening to the prophets about where Christ's child would be born, now is the same one who seeks to kill the Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, you think the punishment for Herod is not greater than it is for someone who just didn't know? It is. That's the damaging part, especially for what Hebrews taught us. We were just saying from years ago, for those who know, for those that know, listen, if you sat under the teaching of God's word forever, and you know the truth, you've heard the truth, and you still deny it, you're in great, 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 great danger. Great danger. And for those who reject Christ, after knowing who Christ is, the King of all kings and the Redeemer of all men, and you still reject, there's going to be a greater and much more severe penalty. And God has much more to say about this event by Herod, and we'll get to that next time. This is a good place for us to stop. And maybe begin to move on into chapter 3, we'll see. And I think there's some good thoughts for us here as we flesh out these things. That is, what is my response really to the Lord? I mean, as I look at my life at this point in the numbering situation of the days of my life, whatever age I call myself, where am I really with Jesus? Have I really seriously done business with him? I mean, could you identify yourself with Joseph and say, yes, this is exactly how I hope I would respond? Or do you kind of find yourself saying, no, I'm still kind of on the edges with him, and I'm not really sure how I would respond? Well, as many pastors throughout the centuries have said, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to make sure that we're right and we know where we stand in Christ. Wait a Put yourself out. Herod, Joseph, and Mary. Which one would you want to be? Today, knowing the situation. Often, we are towards a balance. God says, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be my last? Or do you want to be the ones that only have the problem around That's the Seussus of the world. And that's what we're faced with. In this beautiful scenario, Matthew is saying to the Jews, he is the king. Look a further. This is the Messiah. He is the only one of God. He is God come in the flesh. Don't turn away from him. Through which tragedy, many of you are Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Let's close there's much more we can delve into. We hear your spirit speaking to us. So thankful. Those of us that are born again, we know that your spirit lives in us. We acknowledge, first of all, we're nothing. Just, the, just like the Puritan letters were writing at the beginning of this book, it started the service. And we realize that less of us glorifies the more you. So we thank you, we honor you, we worship you. Lord, thank you for your word that exposes to our hearts the truth of what you want and who you are from us. Thank you that you are a loving, gracious, kind God that forgives over and over and over again, that offers grace and mercy over and over and over again to those that seek. No matter what our life situation has been all about, and so Lord, we come to you this closing moment now, just offering to yourself, ourselves, fresh and new. I'm confident each day of worship corporately as a church is to be a time where we are reminded of the good things that you've done for us because of your resurrection. That you literally went to the grave to the dead of our sin, and you rose again for us to eternal life, for all who put their hope and trust in you. 
Lord, may that be the case today. Any soul that might be in the hearing of your word, wherever they may be, we come to you. Let you rest with them. Fathers, we close our time together. We pray that you're honored and you're glorified in all things. In Jesus' name. Thank you.